My name is Larry Yang, and uh, for those of you whom I've not met, and unfortunately I don't think I'm going to get a chance to meet everybody, but I am so happy and feel so privileged in being here, and I think the sound needs to come up a little bit. How's that in back? Is that better? Great. So the title of tonight's talk is um, Creating a World of Freedom. And it is uh, centered around right action of the Eightfold Path. And we've been talking about these words, right? Wise, um, right, complete, sometimes is used, or impeccable, um, skillful. And really, all the words are pointing in the same direction. They are all pointing to that experience of what is going to lead to more freedom. What will lead to less suffering, less greed, less aversion, less confusion in our lives. And in terms of wise action, you actually are all doing it right now. I mean, you're here in this retreat. You've, you've carved out 10 days, 9, 10 days, which is not an easy thing to do. You know, you're, you're managing livelihood, families, relationships, um, all of this stuff that we hold, and you come here. There is, there is no action that, that can be wiser to create this, this capacity of our experience to be aware, to create that stillness that everyone can feel the world needs, and all of you are doing it. So that means you don't really need this talk. <laughs> I was going to say, that's the end. <laughs> That would, probably wouldn't be very wise of me. <laughs> in the, in the Samyutta Nikaya, it asks, what is right action? Abstaining from taking life, abstaining from stealing, abstaining from sexual misconduct. This is what is called right action. So our practice gets manifested in the world through this practice of sila, of ethical behavior or conduct that's, that's manifested by speech, action, and livelihood in the Eightfold Path. The other parts of the Eightfold Path that, that we have um, reviewed view, intention, mindfulness, effort, and concentration you can feel are factors that actually transform our internal experience. It's really that inner work, that purification that happens. And action is the practice by which we live in the world. Each moment that we live with this mindfulness in our lives, we not only change our unconsciousness, and, uncondition and condition patterns, but we change the unconsciousness and condition patterns 
that surround us. This means that the precepts are the practice. The precepts that invite us, that Trudy invited us on the very first evening so beautifully as an invitation into both mindfulness and kindness because they are, they are guidelines and invitations to non-harming in our world. That non-violence invites loving kindness and compassion. Non-theft creates the space for generosity. Ethical sexuality <coughs> creates that space for, for, for respect and honoring our bodies and our hearts. Noah spoke to speech as kindness in communications with both self and others. And the invitation to not misuse intoxicants creates the conditions for insight and the opening of our hearts. Inclining our actions to be congruent with our practice moment to moment as we live. So this is a story that comes from um, uh, New York City and, and uh, this social worker, Julio Diaz, um, had a daily routine that he would go um, on the number six train um, every night back home and stop at his diner to have dinner. But one night last month, Diaz stepped off the number six train and his evening took an unexpected turn. He was walking towards the stairs when a teenage boy approached and pulled out a knife. Give me your money. So I gave him my wallet. I told him, here you go. And as the teen began to walk away, Diaz told him, hey, wait a minute. You forgot something. If you're going to be robbing people for the rest of the night, you might as well take my coat to keep warm. The would-be robber looked at his would-be victim <laughs> like, what is going on? Why are you doing this? Diaz replied, if you're, going, if you're willing to risk your freedom for a few dollars, then I guess you really must need the money. I mean, all I wanted to do was get dinner. And if you want to join me, you're more than welcome. He and the teen went to the diner and sat in a booth. The manager comes by. The dishwashers come by. The waiters help say hello. And the kid says, you know everybody here. Do you own this place? No, but I just eat here a lot. But you're nice to everyone, including the dishwasher. Well, haven't you been taught you should be nice to everybody? Yeah, but I didn't think people actually did that. <laughs> Diaz asked him what he wanted out of life, and the teen couldn't answer or didn't want to. When the bill arrived, Diaz looked at the teen Look, I guess you have to pay for this bill because you have my money and you have my wallet. But if you give me back my wallet, I'll gladly treat you. The teen didn't even think about it and returned the wallet. Diaz gave him 20 bucks. I figure it might help him. I don't know. And then 
he asked for something in return, the knife. And the teen gave it to him. I figure, you know, if you treat people right, you can only hope that they treat you right. It's as simple as that in this complex world. The inclination of the heart is more powerful than what the mind can tell us. To always, to always, in, this is the practice of inclining the heart so that when you really need it, it is right there. Wise action and the precepts allow us to be in relationship, in full relationship with the world. They protect others from harm, but they also are said to protect us from harm, allowing us to live blamelessly and at ease. Living a life without regrets, without remorse. It's hard for the mind to settle when, when there's been regret or remorse over something that one has done that has caused harm. You can feel that even in, in the sitting, in the meditation. The precepts guide us into that which creates freedom. But it's also not about being perfect, because we all make mistakes. Ajahn Lee Damodaro, who was one of the Thai masters of the mid-last century, said, precepts are protection, like wearing clothing. And if you find that you accidentally break a precept, you can always come back to them. Wearing torn clothing is better than wearing no clothing in, at all and walking in the world naked. Can you feel the gentleness of that invitation to come back to the precepts, even when we make mistakes? It's like as gentle as coming back to the breath. It's like bringing the attention back to the walking. The precepts are our intentions to be in relationship with each other and the world. And relationship is not a special condition that we save for our spouses or partners or family. Like loving kindness, the actions of our, of our actions of non-harming are intended to be extended in all directions. Like a gentle rain falling indiscriminately on all beings. That's the classic phrase. Suzuki Roshi, who's the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, said, um, I don't see if you're following the precepts or not. I see how you are with each other. How are we with each other? What kind of relationships do we have? Because relationships, I don't know about you, but they're hard. There is not a single relationship I have ever had in my life, whether it's family or friend or intimate partner, that hasn't had the 10,000 joys <laughs> and the 10,000 <laughs> sorrows. And this is what we get to practice. Because when things get hard, do we get hard? 
And we get to practice this directly in this retreat because we are in relationship even in the silence, noticing the, the breath of the person next to you, recognizing not, not them by what they do or what they've told you, not necessarily even by sight, but by the sound of the breath, by the pace of their walk, knowing people beyond words, beyond who we think they are, knowing them by feeling their their intentions of creating this awareness in the world. It's really beautiful. It's intimate. It's a practice of intimacy that usually we only get to experience with our intimate partners or, or family. And yet, in this practice, in the, in the safety and nobility of the silence, we extend that to others. There was a retreat that um, I was teaching at in which a practitioner um, had a lot of difficulty with the breathing of the person right next to them. And it was really loud and disruptive and... Um, they described it as somewhere between pranayama and snoring. <laughs> and this was a repeated theme in our meetings that uh, clearly was um, distressing. And then for whatever reason, whatever reason, that person next to the person that I was meeting with moved. They moved to a different part of the room. And in their, our, our next meeting, the report was, I missed them. <laughs> I'm sorry they're gone. And as we unfolded the conversation, it was interesting that even, even when they didn't like them, even when there was a reason not to like them, the heart was open. Even though the mind had a conceptual reason to push that person, to be aversive and push that person away, the heart missed the presence. So there's this cartoon of a couple leaving a church that sort of looks like, I don't know, like, a, like St. John's Cathedral in New York. It's a very, you know impressive piece of Gothic architecture. And, and the, the one person is, is, is saying to the other, how can I love my enemies when I don't even like my friends? <laughs> and to say that in, in relationship, our preferences don't really matter. We can still be deeply interconnected and remain in relationship, despite our differences. So I'm, um, I'm on what's called the leadership sangha, or the board of directors at East Bay Meditation Center in downtown Oakland. And we call it the leadership sangha specifically because of the word sangha, because we view it as a practice of community. 
And so on the leadership sangha, there is a white heterosexual man, an African-American lesbian, an Asian straight woman, a white gender-neutral queer-identified person, an Asian gay man, that's me, an African-American heterosexual woman, a white Jewish woman, two people identify with multiple chemical sensitivity, one person identifies as being differently abled, there is a huge diversity in age, education, and class. We don't agree on very much. <laughs> Hardly ever. We don't always get along because the differences are so deep. And sometimes, I hate to be truthful, we don't like each other because the differences go so deep. And wise action is not always about pleasant feelings. Our preferences do not determine what wise action is. Because we have the intention of acting as wisely as we can, holding the faith and the trust of this community. And so when differences or conflicts arise, in our larger culture, the condition pattern, when the differences are deep, is that we fragment, we break apart, we polarize. And all you have to do is look at cable news for five minutes and you can feel the division that is cultivated in the culture. And instead of breaking apart, what would it be like to live through those differences breaking together in relationship? That is something quite radical. The invitation to to a deeper level of inclusivity and diversity that, that we normally don't see modeled in our culture. This is how our awareness practice can be a practice in collective intimacy. An intimacy in the loving awareness of our interconnections, even when our differences are huge. Wise action is inclining the mind and heart from the very beginning towards freedom. Not unlike noticing the inception of the inhale or the inception of the step in the walking meditation. Mahako Sananda, who is the Cambodian meditation master who shepherded the cultures of his country through the recovery of one of the holocausts of our current era, the killing fields, wrote, the thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed, the deed develops into habit, habit hardens into character, character gives birth to destiny. So watch your thought with care. 
let it spring from love, born out of respect for all beings. And you arrive in this place, in this retreat, and you begin and set the intention to meditate. And you find that maybe you move with every itch or pain that arises in the body, or that it's impossible to stay with the breath because the mind is jumping from object to object, thought to thought. And you can't do this, or you don't even know why you're doing this. And we beat ourselves up. We judge ourselves over the smallest excuse, or we are judging others. We're judging the the roommates that we haven't had since college. (laughs) Or how someone is walking too fast or taking too much at at the lunch line. Or the teachers. Maybe you don't agree with some of what we've said. Or the practice itself. And the invitation, regardless of what arises, including the judgment, is it possible not to judge the judgment? Because in that movement is the movement of the heart, to meet that experience with kindness as well. And so as Noah was saying in his, in his talk, we begin with what we tell ourselves the messages that, that, that we give to ourselves, And to acknowledge that many times in the unconsciousness of our larger culture, there are these projections of unworthiness upon us, of being less than, not worthy, not deserving, and maybe even not human. Those messages can be deeply internalized over our our childhood and adolescence. And it takes every effort, every ounce of effort, concentration, mindfulness, to counteract this kind of oppression. Last month, in San Francisco at the Gay Men's Chorus, there debuted a piece called Testimony, written by Stephen Schwartz, who wrote Wicked. And he collaborated with Dan Savage of the uh, It Gets Better project. So Stephen took the words and the life stories of the It Gets Better project and and um, folded into this piece that, that uh, goes from this internalized um, deprecation into the movement towards freedom. I don't want to be like this. I don't want to be who I am. Every day I don't change, I blame myself. I'm not trying hard enough. I don't want to be how I am. If they find out, no one will love me. I'll lose my family and all my friends. I'm trapped like a fish with a hook in its mouth. I am impersonating the person I show as me. I'm an imposter. 
I am a spy behind enemy lines. I pack my feelings so deep inside they turn to concrete. Every night I ask God to end my life. I am an abomination. God, take this away or take me away. Take me away. Take me away. Hang in. Hang on. Wait just a little longer. I know it now. I know it now. If I had made myself not exist, there is so much I would have missed. I would have missed so many travels and adventures, more wonders than I knew could be. So many friends with jokes and secrets not to mention, the joy of living in authenticity. Sometimes I cry, life can still be hard, but there is no part of me still crying, hide me. I would have missed the chance to sing out like this with people I love beside me. I have been brave. I grew, and so did those around me. And now look at what a life I've earned. It gets more than better. It gets amazing and astounding. If I could reach my, into my past, I'd tell him what I've learned. I was loved more than I dared to know, and there were more open arms that I could not see. And when I die, and when it's my time to go, I want to come back as me. I want to come back as me. What an action of acceptance. I want to come back as me. Sometimes wise action is the simple courage. What Leela was, was talking about, being there with your heart just to make it through the suffering. And as we do, as we move through our own suffering, the heart moves to act wisely on the behalf of others, to lessen suffering of others so that the suffering doesn't have to be repeated. Wise action is radical action. Radical not because it's extreme, but because it's upstream. And as the Sangha that many of you belong to, against the stream. This is the image of our practice, going against the flow, the stream of what Jung called our collective unconscious. But you know, if there is a collective unconscious, there is a collective conscious. And we cultivate this collective consciousness by what we're doing in retreat, by opening to the experience of our world with all of our hearts and minds. And in this transformation from unconscious to conscious, from unaware to aware. Mindfulness is so precious because we cannot change anything we're not aware of. James Baldwin writes, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed 
unless it's faced. When we're lost in the confusion or the distraction or the anxiety, we have no choice because there's no awareness. And as we become more aware, and as the choices get revealed to us, what are the choices? Really, there's only two. What is going to lead to more suffering and what is going to lead to more freedom? That's the choice point that mindfulness invites us into over and over again. The questions are really simple. But as you can feel, the living into the answers is far more complicated and not necessarily clear. So we do the best we can. Part of the invitation into freedom is can we be kind and loving to the practice itself? The invitation into the loving-kindness practice and the loving-attention practice is to hold the practice itself with loving-attention. So I have a, a mantra that, that when, when the practice gets difficult or when things get difficult, I ask myself, if I can't be loving in this moment, can I be kind? If I can't be kind in this moment, can I be non-judgmental? If I can't be non-judgmental, can I not cause harm? And if I cannot not cause harm, can I cause the least harm possible in this moment? Can you feel the inclination of that practice, regardless of where I am? Because life and the practice is imperfect. We can change our lives because we really dislike our mistakes, can't stand our flaws, even hate certain aspects of our personalities, our bodies, our backgrounds. Or we can change our lives because we are so aware of how precious this life is, so incredulous about the wonder of this life, so in love with its beauty that we can't do anything else but choose to create less suffering in our life and those around us. These are two really different experiences. And so we start incrementally as all of our invitations. This is why I love this path, that, that, it, offers, um, that it offers these, these guidance and, and instructions that, are, that feel doable. And it may sound trivial, but this practice of acting in the world can begin with this practice that we call the itch. So 
you know, as you're sitting, physical sensations arise, including this experience of itch. And what do we do when that arises? Usually, we get rid of it by scratching it. And what is it like to simply sit through the sensations that we call itch? Because you know that it's not going to kill you. And you know it's not going to last a long time. And so, do you ever get to know the other side of the itch? Because if you make it go away, you never actually have that experience. You never actually learn what, what that other side of the itch is. And this, is, this practice is not about not scratching yourself for the rest of your life. <laughs> this practice is the template of how many uncomfortable itches in our life do we just get rid of? because we cannot stand the uncomfortable sensations and we don't actually learn you know, how uncomfortable it is to be in, in the transition of a job or looking for a home or a relationship or whatever it is. We'll never see the other side of the experience if we go around it. I was thinking as I was writing this that this is the difference between Zen and Vipassana. You know, the stories between broken bones and itches. (laughs) (laughs) We can get the impression that our awakening is dependent on our own efforts, that it's dependent on our ability to stay with the breath or our, the awareness of our own experience, physical sensations, emotions, and thoughts. And in the Satipatthana, the noble ones abide contemplating internally. They contemplate, they abide contemplating externally they abide contemplating both externally and internally. Being aware of both our internal and external experience is the invitation of mindfulness. Being aware of our experience and the experience of others in our world. So how do we do this? Analio, who is one of the current commentators on the Satipatthana, writes, it doesn't require psychic powers, only awareness and some degree of common sense. For a balanced development of awareness, this shift from internal to external is of considerable importance. Awareness applied only internally can lead to self-centeredness one can become excessively concerned with what happens with and within oneself while at the same time remaining unaware of how one's actions and behavior affects others. Internal and external reflection. So uh, this dates me, but um, I was at a conference in Tokyo and uh, we found out um, that uh, Bruce Springsteen was, 
was opening his Born in the USA tour, so this is way back in the mid-'80s, um, in Tokyo. And so we decided to get tickets. And the stadium was the 1960 Olympic Stadium, which fits like 22,000 people. And um, as we were getting tickets in the line, there was a, um, I don't know, an usher or announcer saying, you know, please don't stand in the aisles. Please don't stand on your chairs. And please don't do anything to um, disrespect or dishonor our, our guest tonight. Okay. So we go in, and, and, and it was a great concert. And at the end of the concert, um, our group was talking because nobody was moving. And after a while, nobody was moving again. And we thought, you know, is there a second act? Or... And then we realized that the entire stadium was exiting row by row. <laughs> there is that, or at least at that time, that collective consciousness. Now, fast forward 20 years, and my husband Stephen and I decided to go to a George Michael concert in San Jose. <laughs> so we're standing outside of the San Jose Coliseum, and Fred Phelps—is his name Fred Phelps? You know, the guy who hates fags—is demonstrating uh, in front of the, the Coliseum, and um, and and you know all of the hate language and everything like that. And as we and we walk into the stadium, take our seats, and the moment the concert starts, everybody is on the seat, everybody is in the aisle. And everybody is everywhere. And, and it's actually quite unnerving because we're on risers. So the risers are like <laughs> going back and forth. Thousands of people. We actually decided to leave early because it was um, uh, quite unnerving. <laughs> but how are we, are we with each other? What is our level of collective awareness with each other in order for us to live together? What is, my, what is the impact of my life on yours? And what is your, the impact of your life on mine? This actually starts right here and now. You know, as you move out the doors into that, that area of the shoes and trying to navigate you know, the, in the silence, or the dining room, which is a crazy place, three times a day. Or, you know, how territorial do we get when we go to our rooms with our roommates? And, you know, what, what does that feel like? This is the opportunity to practice this internal and external awareness. And it doesn't stop at musical concerts or retreats or dining rooms. So mindfulness, as you may have heard, is, is entering many of our mainstream um, avenues, including schools. And in downtown Oakland, uh, mindfulness is being taught in some of the most stressed communities in the, in the elementary schools, just you know, 10, 15 minutes every morning. And in one of these sessions, um, 
a nine-year-old boy comes up to the teacher and says, guess what I found out? What? I found out that when I get angry, I don't have to do anything about it. That is such a skill not just this nine-year-old boy needs, but all of us need. And what potential this young boy has in changing the energy of these communities. There's a article, was an article in New York Times about how they're teaching mindfulness to um, uh, both returning and redeployed um, military from Iraq and Afghanistan, partially to um, prevent PTSD and suicidal risk. But there are other benefits too. One, a veteran of several deployments to Iraq said he was out at dinner the previous night when a customer at a nearby table said he and his friends were being obnoxious. The veteran said, at one time, I would have thrown the guy out the window and gone for the jugular. But guided by the new techniques, he fought the temptation decided to buy a man, the man a beer instead. Later, the guy came over and apologized. This is the skill that he's bringing back to Iraq or Afghanistan. This is how this practice begins to transform the world around us. When I was um, practicing at the monastery in northern Thailand, this monastery hosted um, the Thai Ministry of Defense every year for a week retreat. The whole ministry would go into ret retreat for a, for a week. <laughs> we notice the impulse, and we don't need to react to it. We notice the anger, and I don't have to do anything about it. This, I don't know, Wes, I'll have to ask you on the side. This seems to me as to be a highly evolved human behavior <laughs> that no other species has. This is pretty amazing, to notice the impulse and not need to respond. That non-response is why it can be wise action. And wise action is not the intention of no action at all. So there's a distinction between non-action and no action. There's a distinction between suppressing and denying experience and not and being completely disengaged, or being fully engaged and being with the situation so that you know what is skillful to do next. This is the way things are. That classic teaching, actually for me, needs three more words. This is the way things are in this moment. That's all it says. In this moment, this is the way things are. 
And as I explore this moment with mindfulness, what will lead to less suffering? What action will lead to less suffering? This practice is not a passive um, uh, practice that, that encourages no action at all. We cannot live into freedom without wise action. The movement to change things, to alleviate suffering without insight or mindfulness causes suffering. The movement to, do, to not do anything to alleviate suffering also creates suffering. But the movement to change things with insight leads to freedom. After the Buddha's awakening, after sitting underneath the the Bodhi tree and having his struggles with Mara and coming through it, he actually had had to decide what to do. Because he was totally awake and free. He was fine. And he had to choose do I do anything with this? And he almost didn't. But then when he surveyed the world, he saw there were beings with little dust in their eyes and, there was, and that they could be free from the suffering in this life. And he could not do nothing. And so he acted and taught for the rest of his life, for the next 45 years. Meditation isn't about bypassing or transcending a situation to make it go away. It is not being about being passive or disempowered. It is about responding with an action that leads to freedom. And we know, our hearts know what leads to freedom. Our hearts yearn for that. There's um, an artist in New Orleans called, Cindy, called Candy Chang. And she did this public art installation across the world in different cities. Um, and what she did was she um, put up uh, uh, blackboards across two city blocks, quite high, and provided chalk. And at the top of the blackboard, it said, before I die, I want to. So in Chicago, it was written, Watch my kids go to college, save a life, fund scholarships. In New Orleans, it was written, get clean, see equality, abandon all insecurities, live my best life, cure cancer, see all homeless people with homes, live without regret. Brooklyn, be a princess. See an end to racism. Find out who I really am. Create my own children's book. In Querétaro, Mexico, a peaceful Mexico, change the lives of people. Be a princess. (laughs) Something about being a princess. Live the best life. In Kazakhstan, Learn how to be brave. Change the world. 
see all people being kind, be happy. The heart knows what is wise. Many of us I've talked to, but I know there are many more of you who are involved in, in, in important work in the world, whether it's social justice or change on a personal or a collective level. We can work to change the world because we cannot stand the harm that's being caused, because we hate the injustice because we are enraged by the unfairness. Or we can be inspired to change the world because we love it so dearly, because we hold it with such wondrous awe, because we realize how precious this life is through any of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, that we can't do anything else but create less suffering and more freedom for ourselves and the people around us with our hearts as open as they can be. And again, these are two very different experiences. The work of transformation is really difficult and hard because the suffering in this life is difficult and hard. That's the first noble truth. So when life gets difficult and hard, do our hearts get difficult and hard as well? Do we embody the first noble truth or do we embody the path to freedom? In the preparation of um, a Dharma retreat in Tallahassee that um, I was invited to give uh, a couple of years ago, before... Um, I went, I was given a book as part of um, uh, background for the, um, the culture around Tallahassee. And the, and the book was Freedom in the Family, a Mother-Daughter Memoir of the Fight for Civil Rights by Patricia Stevens Dew, who actually passed away in February of this year. She was um, one of the f- activists of that very first jail-in um, uh, and, and um, protest uh, to sit in on the lunch counters of Woolworths because they were segregated. And this passage has always caught my attention. I mentioned that some of our jailers were verbally abusive towards us, but one simply was professional, neither more or less. Only days before we were to leave that jailer, a tall, mature-looking man, whose name I don't know, unexpectedly showed up carrying a very young boy, perhaps as young as three or four. Since whites had been restricted from seeing us, it was a shock to see the jailer bring a white child that young. Once they were closer, we could tell that from the resemblance that the boy must be his son. The jailer stood in front of the cell with his son on his arm, and the boy leaned his tiny face through the bars to gaze at us. I braced for the worst, imagining he was about to sow the seeds of racism in the next generation. The jailer began to speak, pointing us out one by one. Now these ladies are sisters, Priscilla Stevens and Patricia Stevens. 
and the other lady here is Barbara Broxton. Say hello to them. Hi, the boy said obediently. I know Daddy has told you that only bad people go to jail. Well, you may be too young to understand, but these ladies aren't in jail because they're crooks or because they're bad people. They're in jail because they're trying to change the laws that say blacks and whites can't eat together. They want to be treated just like anybody else, and they believe in what they're doing so much they're willing to go to jail to make it right. So you try to remember that, okay? One day, you'll look back and realize how important it was for them to do this. The boy nodded soberly. Perhaps he understood, and perhaps he didn't. But that jailer could not have given a greater gift to those behind bars, nor to his son. Wise action can be the simple act of sitting at a lunch counter or being a parent, sharing a truth of life with your child. And it begins to change all of our lives. Not just the lives of the women, not just the lives of the father and the son, but the thousands of people who have read that book and maybe even us right now. The woman who organized that Tallahassee Day Long entitled it Compassionate Transformation, Healing the Legacy of Slavery. Did the Day Long do anything? Did it heal any of the legacy of suffering that still follows us into this world in 2012? I don't know. But I rely on the words of um, Bayard Rustin, the the gay African-American activist who organized the March on Washington for Dr. King. He said, God does not require us to achieve any of the good tasks that humanity must pursue. What God requires of us is that we not, we not stop trying. Do not stop trying. That is wise action. It is never too late to love, even if suffering surrounds us. It is never too late to love ourselves, others, the world. It is never too late to have loving awareness. Dr. King wrote, our goal is to create a beloved community and this will require a qualitative change in our souls as well as a quantitative change in our lives. That is a shift in consciousness for all of us. In 1995, conservationists were about to close on a 10,000-acre ranch in eastern Oregon to convey it to the Bureau of Land Management. Just six weeks before the closing, project manager Bowen Blair for the trust of uh, the public land got a call from Jamie Pinkham, a member of the Nez Perce Nation. 
Jamie relates that this piece of property contained the cave in which their ancestral leader, Chief Joseph, was born. At the end of the last great war between the US cavalry and an Indian nation, Chief Joseph made his famous statement, hear me, my chiefs, I am tired. My heart is sick and sad, and from where the sun now stands, I will fight no more. The Nez Perce had very little money, but a whole lot of history and connection to that land. The conversation changed both men. However, personal transformation was insufficient to heal what had occurred to an Indian nation over generations of oppression. So they started two years of complex negotiation which triggered impacts across the communities in the area. One can quickly imagine the value of this effort to the Nez Perce people, but what did it ask of the white ranchers who had come to dominate this land since before the times of the Indian Wars? For a people who were forcefully moved from their land five generations ago, becoming a good neighbor required incredible acts of forgiveness and compassion. The return of the Nez Perce to their precious lands proved transformational for all communities. From that forgiveness, the largely white community of Enterprise, Oregon, felt its lessons and started thinking differently and acting differently. The community became deeply divided over the appropriateness of the high school mascot called the Savage. Armed guards were required at the Board of Education hearings. And in the end, it was the vote of the students who prevailed, and the community began to sandblast the Indian symbol off the school's walls. In June 1997, the Trust for Public Land was able to convey to the nation some 10,300 acres in the heart of the ancestral homeland of Northeast Oregon. It was 120 years after Chief Joseph and his people were driven from their lands in 1877. Three years later, the Nez Perce entered into a remarkable partnership with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and Cattlemen's Association to reintroduce the wolf. And three years later, that, after that, came the most amazing change of all, their ability to deal morally and practically with one of the most difficult issues of the West, the control of water. The Nez Perce joined with white ranchers and irrigators to voluntarily reduce the amount of water flowing to ranches so that salmon could be restored to local rivers, an initiative that shares control of the river and makes partners with the salmon. The ability for individual people and communities to be lovingly aware of each other to be in relationship, to stay in relationship through wise action and the Eightfold Path, regardless of what the difficulties and obstacles are. To feel the aspiration to be whole again. Whole in the largest sense of the word. As a whole community, as a whole people, 
as the universal family that includes even the wolf and the salmon. This is the beloved community in its largest sense. We can hold a vision of how we see the world to be and make our actions congruent with that vision. Each time we practice this awareness and kindness, we are changing ourselves, the world around us, and our world. There is no action that is more wise. Are we willing to be aware of that? This is not just about your practice. This is not just about awakening or enlightenment. This is not just about our personal salvation, but it's about our collective journey and transformation into freedom. There is a direct connection of what we're doing in this room creating peace in this room with how we need peace in the world. Our practice is not some postponement into some unknown future of our freedom. We create these moments of freedom right now for us, for ourselves, our families, our world, and worlds yet to be. More than noble, these truths are living truths. They are just words unless they are lived through our lives. Which means we're the embodiment of the Four Noble Truths. We're the embodiment of the Buddha's path. And we are the embodiment of this path towards freedom. That is really noble. And I thank you for your nobility. (coughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.